That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome to this Friday edition of the Bill Press Pod and this week's Roundtable. It was the last week of the campaign, but in many ways, it seemed like the campaign was frozen in place. There was no debate, no big breaking news, no October surprise. The only new development was that over 81 million Americans have now already cast their vote. Does that mean this election is already over? Or when will we know? And will it be the American people who decides or the Supreme Court? Meanwhile, with a relentless mind of its own, the coronavirus rolls on with 9 million Americans now infected, 225,000 dead, and the majority of states, north, south, east, and west, reporting a record number of new cases. One thing for sure, even if the campaign ends on November 3rd, the pandemic will not. So here today to look back on this week and try to make some sense of it all, three of Washington's top political reporters from the Los Angeles Times, Jennifer Hapricorn. Hello, Jennifer. Hi, Bill. Great to be with you. Thank you. From the Wall Street Journal, Sabrina Siddiqui. Hi, Sabrina. Hi, Bill. And joining us for the first time on the Bill Press Pod from USA Today, White House correspondent, David Jackson. Hi, David. Hey, Bill. How you doing? All right. Good to have you all here. So uh, this past week, uh, when we look at it, it's a campaign like none of us have ever covered before. Uh, this last week, Jennifer, start with you. Anything change? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I almost feel, Bill, when you were doing your intro, I was worried that you were jinxing us and that um, <laughs> the major things were going to happen this weekend or some October surprise. Uh, it could. Um, <laughs> but, it could. Um, but short of that, um, it really feels like it hasn't. I mean, it feels like all of the trends that we were seeing, if anything, have become more permanent and uh, have been further ingrained at both the presidential and in the Senate races that um, I in particular have been following. It just feels like the trends that we were on are going in the same direction with a couple. I mean, I was interested in the Georgia um, Senate race. We saw John Ossoff's uh -huh. chances, if anything, seemed to be a bit better. Um, uh, Biden, uh, Pennsylvania still seems like a major swing state. So, um, that, that's where I feel like things are right now. Right. I know you've been spending a lot of time on the Senate races, and I'm going to talk about those uh, just a little bit later. But again, on the presidential level, what? how do you see it, Sabrina? Well, this it, looks, past week? it looks increasingly like this is Joe Biden's election to lose. I think that if you take into account that he has had a consistent lead in both national and battleground polls, and that this is not actually... Um, similar to 2016 in terms of not only his lead being bigger than that of Hillary Clinton, but also that he's running against a president whose approval ratings have fallen, especially amid the coronavirus pandemic, and that there's a much smaller percentage of undecided voters than there was four years ago. 
it should give Democrats at least some confidence that they're not headed for a repeat of 2016. But having said that, we do have this record number of people who are casting their ballots through early voting. A key unanswered question, even as Democrats have an advantage over Republicans in early voting based on the information that's available so far, is how many of these voters are casting their ballots early because of the pandemic? Uh, Mm -hmm. and, And will this number, especially with respect to the advantage that Democrats hold, be offset by a large number of Republicans who show up to the polls on election day? And the latter is what the Trump campaign is counting on. So I think, uh, you know, after four, after what happened four years ago, even if I said it's an imperfect comparison, I don't think that Democrats will feel like Joe Biden, like like Joe Biden has this locked up until the race, until and if and when I should say the race is actually called. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, if and when. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about that, too, a little bit. David, from your perspective, uh, looking at this past week, the candidates both on the road, do you see anything moving, any move of the needle? Uh, only a slight movement toward Biden, I would say. I've, I've been dealing mostly with the Trump people. And, you know, Bill, three weeks ago when the president had COVID, uh, there were people in that campaign who really thought it was over, that the, the cake was baked, as one of them said. But uh, this past week, I've heard some increasing op- semi-optimism from the Trump people, and th- their feeling is that he can still pull it out. They, they don't feel very good about Wisconsin and Michigan, but they feel like if Trump can hold on in Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Arizona, that they can still put together a, a, a map that gives them 280 electoral votes. And so they're, they're, I would say they're, you know, they feel like it could be a repeat of 2016 that Trump could come back and pull an upset. Yeah. Yeah. David, I want to ask you particularly about one aspect of this campaign. I remember uh, Obama's reelection when I was going to the briefings every day. You, of course, were there for USA Today. And there was a distinct difference between the White House news, which was given to us every day at the briefing by the press secretary and the campaign staff. Right. Right. Uh, It seems it seems to me this year that the White House staff is the campaign staff. I mean, Kelly, Kaylee McEnany is on the road every day with so is Mark Meadows, the chief of staff. Uh, right. Is that is that the way it is? Yeah, it is the way it is, and it's, it is quite unusual. If you'll notice, Kaylee, when she does TV appearances, she's identified as being in her own personal capacity. So basically, she's taken a leave of absence from the press secretary's role, and they're, they're maintaining that she's a private person who just happens to be traveling with the president and speaking on his behalf. Uh, Larry Kudlow did a campaign call yesterday, and as he was introduced, the uh, the person noted that he is appearing here in his personal capacity. So they're trying to get around the Hatch Act by saying that government officials who were speaking out on behalf of the president's reelection are acting in their personal capacity. It is, it is quite unusual because, as you noted, Obama, when he was in this situation, he had a separate campaign staff that spoke about politics and a White House staff that talked about policy. In in, in this era, the two have been commingled. Yeah. Uh, Of course, the president sees that his uh, rallies, uh, one a day, two a day, three a day sometimes, uh, are what's going to put him over the top. Are these rallies reaching any but the already decided, the already Trumpers, Jennifer? Oh, I feel like there's so many people this year 
um, who have already made their decision, perhaps made it years ago, and it's not going to change. I can't imagine that there's anyone that a Trump rally is reaching who wasn't already on board with the um, president. And I think the question is um, going to be turnout. You know, are those is he going to energize folks enough to actually go to the polls? And of course, um, the president has uh, really discouraged the idea of early voting or absentee voting. So the problem for the Trump campaign is that he has to make sure those people actually turn out on election day, um, which is going to be a little more difficult. But the idea of, I mean, the, the idea of Trump fatigue, obviously it's, um, you know, there's there's a contagion on the left of, of Trump fatigue. And I do wonder how much that's encroaching on um, folks who are kind of light Trump supporters that, it, you know, they mm-hmm. were inclined to vote for the president or perhaps voted for him in 2016. But, um, you know, the shine has kind of gone away. Yeah. And Sabrina, you've been covering particularly the Biden campaign, uh, a totally different style of campaigning, right? I mean, we're back to drive-in movies or the equivalent campaign equivalent of drive-in movies. Uh, working for Biden? Well, there's a very clear contrast, and the campaign thinks that it's good for Joe Biden because from the outset of the pandemic, his message has been that he is heeding the calls of experts, listening to the science, and that he's not uh, being reckless or exposing other people or himself. And so I think that, look, you know, how much does it matter that he's doing a drive-in rally compared to President Trump's packed in-person rallies? I'm not so sure. I think, uh, you know, as we've all been saying, a lot of people's minds have already been made up for some time about President Trump, but I think it helps Joe Biden just reinforce this broader frustration with the Trump administration's handling of the pandemic. I don't think it's really going to necessarily come down to the style of campaigning more so than it will the fact that more than 8 million people across the United States have now contracted the virus. The death toll has surpassed 227,000. Public health experts say that we're about to actually hit the hardest phase now that it hasn't even come yet. And a lot of Americans have had their lives paralyzed by this pandemic. Uh, Suburban voters who swung away from Trump in 2018 uh, have had no reason to really go back to give him another look in a year where their lives have been, have been abandoned. And as we hit, as we get closer to election day, their children are still home from school. So I just think that it's more broadly about the pandemic and the totality of its impact on the American electorate than it necessarily will be how the candidates campaign. But again, Mm -hmm. that just once again drives home this contrast that Joe Biden has been trying to make over the last six, now almost seven months. Right. So, David, you mentioned some of the states that Trump people are looking at. Of course, yesterday, both uh, President Trump and the Vice President Biden were in Florida appealing to Latino voters. Here was uh, Joe Biden's message to Florida. Ladies and gentlemen, the heart and soul of this country is at stake right here in Florida. It's up to you. You hold the key. If Florida goes blue, it's over. Florida, particularly a key state, David. What other states are you looking at? Uh, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Arizona, I think. Um... I think those, and Trump really has to sweep him to have a chance. And I, but I think early on election day, 
uh, Florida and North Carolina are usually the, among the first states to report, and those are going to be the two states to keep your eye on. If Trump, uh, if Trump's ahead in those states, and, and it feels like he might be able to pull them out, then he has a chance. If he loses either one, that's a, that's a really really bad sign. Yeah, uh, Jennifer, this is, you know the president and the vice president today are both in Wisconsin. I mean, the former vice president, Wisconsin and Minnesota. Uh, what states are you sort of keeping your eye on? Well, I, it feels like Wisconsin is outside the grasp of. Um, President Trump at this point. I mean, I know uh, Wisconsin people are particularly leery of trusting the polls there, but it seems like it's out of reach. I mean, I, for me, it feels like Pennsylvania is going to be the the tipping point state. And, um, mm-hmm. it, you know, as, as David mentioned, it's it's a state that, you know, if Trump doesn't win, it's, uh, it's hard to see a path forward for him. But, um, Pennsylvania is interesting. I think I think it's really interesting that Georgia is leaning toward uh, Vice President Biden at this point, which would be the first time in uh, effort, uh, several decades that that has happened. Right. Yeah, I saw that, too. Uh, the latest numbers I saw on Pennsylvania were Biden up about five, five to, to seven points. Uh, Sabrina, one maybe um, a sort of item that the Trump people were counting on as an October surprise was Hunter Biden and the emails and the laptop that was dropped off in Wilmington, Delaware, and Rudy Giuliani. Um, Your paper, the Wall Street Journal, did not pick up on that and run with it. Um, Why not? Well, my colleagues at the Wall Street Journal did review a number of emails that were related to Hunter Biden's business dealings and interviewed his, his one of his former business partners, but there was no evidence and there was no information available to suggest in the records that the Wall Street Journal reviewed that Joe Biden had any direct role in his son's business dealings. And even though there was one um, conference in 2017 where Joe Biden did meet one of Hunter's business associates, all uh, that that associate could recall was that Biden said hello and thanked him for his service in the movie. So there was there just was nothing to directly tie Joe Biden to his son's work, which is really the central claim that Trump and his allies have been trying to make. Now, um, I think that, you know, this would be a problem if Hunter Biden was running for president. But Mr. Biden is not running for president. And I think the reason why it hasn't stuck the way that the emails controversy did is one that was a, a controversy that directly implicated Hillary Clinton, even if, of course, you can question um, whether or not there was a, a legitimate uh, issue when other secretaries of state have also used mm-hmm. the private um, email account for, for official business. And now this has actually been something that many Trump administration administration officials are doing, but, um, I, this is just not something that has, there's, that has really implicated Joe Biden himself. And right. it's just not something that I also think is going to move people. It's interesting. Even Senator Ted Cruz has been a pretty loyal, uh, surrogate or just loyal. I should say loyal ally for the president. He hasn't necessarily been a surrogate on the campaign, he told Axios in an interview just over the past week that he doesn't think it's going to move a single vote, the Hunter right. Biden issue. 
Um, I think it's something that for the president's base cares about and thinks that the media is not covering adequately. But the president needs a lot more than his base to win this election on Tuesday. So, David Jackson, when are we going to know? <laughs> that's, a, that's a darn <laughs> good question. Um, you know, it's possible we could. Um, you know, I, I just I don't think anybody really knows because of the, it, it, it all boils down to how quickly the states can count these mail in ballots. But I, I don't think we're going to know before Wednesday. Um, I just uh -huh. think that uh, Trump's. We won't know before Wednesday at the earliest. I think I do think that Trump and the Republicans will pull well on Election Day itself, and I think that's going to distort the results here. So he's liable to be ahead or, or close to ahead in most of these key states that we've talked about. Um, mm -hmm. I had a pollster last night, an unaffiliated pollster, tell me he thought that Trump would hit his peak peak vote and peak performance at about around 11.45 p.m. on Tuesday night. And at that point, it'll slowly go the other way because it'll have California counting and you'll have the states counting their mail-in votes, particularly in Pennsylvania. So mm -hmm. um, that tells me that we won't, we, won't, we won't know the actual real winner until Wednesday. Although I have to add, like I say, if, if, he, if it's obvious that he's going to lose Florida or North Carolina or Pennsylvania, those eastern right. time zone states, I think we can pretty much pretty much safely bet what's going to happen. Uh, by the way, just a little uh, a note there. Uh, in the last couple of weeks here on the podcast, we talked to both Larry Sabato and uh, Charlie Cook. I think all of us would agree they know politics as well as anybody else we know. Uh, both of them said if the president loses Florida, if Donald Trump loses Florida, it's all over. Um, Correct. And, and Florida does count its votes ahead of time. They're counting their absentee ballots or mail-in ballots ahead of time. So we'll know. Tuesday night uh, about Florida, they believe, uh, uh, at, at any rate. Uh, and Jennifer, what happens if we don't know Tuesday night and it drags on and on? Oh, I think it's going to be a... Uh... I think it's going to be a tough couple days because, as David mentioned, or weeks. You know, <laughs> right or weeks, um, because I mean, for the president to have any chance, he has to have a huge turnout of people actually going to the ballot box on Tuesday. So we could see a situation in which it looks like Trump is doing very well on election night and all those early votes, if they are, in fact, voting for Biden in the numbers that some people are predicting, um, you know, it's going to look like that's coming in later. And if you remember um, in the last cycle, we saw a situation, particularly in California, where um, it looked like Republicans were doing very well on the day of the election. And in fact, some of the races were actually called for Republicans. But once mail-in ballots were voted, uh, were, were counted, um, it actually turned out that the Democrat had one, particularly in House races. So um, we saw Republicans really chastise that. We saw Republicans say that um, uh, the, uh, the vote tally had flipped when, in fact, they were just merely counting. And so I, I think that's going to be really difficult to watch if um, uh, and it could open the door to accusations of uh, uh, nefarious activity that isn't actually happening. Right. Yeah. And of course, it, 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 he's made it a pretty apparent that the president would love to see it go all the way to the Supreme Court because he thinks he's got the votes there now uh, mm -hmm. that, would cinch it, that would cinch it for him. Uh, before we take a break, Sabrina, you mentioned the 81 million people that have already voted. Um, and what, what does that tell us? Here's, here's what I'm wondering, whether the president's constant warnings about the um, having a fair and honest election uh, and warning people don't trust the mails and everything, 
might have backfired in the sense that it's moved so many people to get out and vote early to make sure their vote is in. I think that you could say there's been some degree of the president's message backfiring. Um, and it has to do with, of course, as you point out, the extraordinary number of people who have shown up early to cast their ballots. And You know, let me, I'm sorry to jump in, but it's like in some states, it's 80% of what they turned out to vote in 2016 have already voted. You know? We, we don't, we'll, we'll know more on Tuesday night, maybe maybe after Tuesday, but we hope on Tuesday night we have a result that this process doesn't drag out. But it seems like there are, there is perhaps a, a segment of the population that wants to vote early, and especially with Democrats holding what I think had been until recently a two-to-one advantage, or that is... Um, mm -hmm. In some states, gotten uh, the, the margin has gotten smaller, but tightening up, right? But 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 for the most part, uh, you you a lot of these Democratic voters, at least, uh, when they've been interviewed, have openly stated that uh, they wanted to vote in person and vote early to make sure their vote is counted and also to leave very little doubt. Um, I think there's a, a real, at least among some Democratic voters desire to make, to have a margin that is large enough that there isn't an opportunity for the president to cast out and try and drag on this process. But, you know, of course, again, we, we don't know if that's going to be offset by a larger number of Republicans uh, on election day. And we also don't know if um, some of this is simply because people want to avoid uh, the because of the pandemic right. longer lines on election day. And of course, with absentee ballots still limit in-person contact. Uh, but mm -hmm. I think another potential ramification for the president is that you've seen, of course, a smaller number of Republicans vote absentee. Now, now typically Democrats do hold an advantage anyway with respect to absentee ballots, but but it's also possible that the president has suppressed some of his own turnout or turnout among Republicans in, who who also would, in a pandemic election uh, may have been thinking about voting by mail, but now are skeptical of the integrity of that process, even if it always bears repeating, there's no reason to doubt the absentee ballot process. And there has been no indication of any fraud, fraud or any other issues with absentee, with the uh, absentee voting. Right. So Sabrina Zadiki, Jennifer Habercorn, David Jackson, our, our panel for today here on the Bill Press Roundtable. Uh, we didn't even get to the U.S. Senate races yet. They're so important. Um, We'll, we'll do that right after this quick break. And the Bill Press Pod, today's roundtable is brought to you by the International Association of Firefighters, the good men and women of the IAFF, 320,000 strong across the United States and Canada. They are our firefighters and paramedics, certainly essential workers who have been on the front line since the beginning of this pandemic. In fact, they're on the front lines every day, year in and year out, protecting American families and Canadian families. We salute them under the leadership of President Harold Schaefberger and thank them for their support for their great work and their support of the Bill Press Pod. And we're back with today's roundtable. Joining us from USA Today, David Jackson, from the Wall Street Journal, Sabrina Siddiqui, and from the Los Angeles Times, Jennifer Habercorn. Uh, David, before we get into the Senate races, uh, just one little post button here on uh, the presidential race. 
looking at the latest numbers and this latest surge on COVID-19, yesterday, Thursday, was uh, a new record of the number of cases on a single day in the United States, 88,521. Yesterday, 971 Americans died uh, from the coronavirus, and over 40 states reported an increase in cases. I don't think any state has reported a decline in cases. So, David, is COVID the number one issue in this election? Do we know that? Um, I think we know that. I, I, I would say that it is, but I also have to say that in talking to some Trump people, one of the things they said feedback they were getting from people they had contacted in voter outreach was that voters were tired of all the divisiveness and all the fighting between the politicians and that they're worried that a significant number of voters are blaming Trump for all of that. Now, COVID's included in that, all the fighting over mm-hmm. how to handle the pandemic. But um, I personally think that COVID is the biggest issue driving the election. But there are some people in the Trump campaign who feel like it's the overall divisiveness among the political classes that is the biggest issue that they're looking uh- at. I guess we'll know more when we get the exit polls, right? right. Uh, and those those interviews. Well, those are going to be questionable because the exit polling are also talking to people who have already voted. That, so they yeah. have a new term now. They don't call them exit polls. I can't remember what the new term is, but I I, I, I just wonder how accurate that information is going to be because it's such an as you mentioned, it's such an unusual thing to have so many people vote so early. I want I can't help but wonder if that's going to distort the uh, the uh, the numbers in the exit polls. And Jennifer, despite the. Um, the reality of the numbers, right? The president still says every at every rally, we're turning the corner. Uh, the message seems to contradict reality, Jen, uh, but he persists in it, right? He thinks that's Ab- the winning message. Absolutely. And um, it, it really is a weird split screen because we're, we see him saying that we're turning the corner, but the corner seems to be to increasing number of cases and deaths. I mean, if you look at the um, charts, I mean, we're just on the edge of a huge spike. It, uh, you know, I, I, I hate to say, but that that's definitely what it looks like. And, um, you know, if if this election is a referendum on the president, COVID is at the top of that list of um, how he's doing. And it's hard to see how it's it's almost like he's trying to convince people that what they're looking at is not real. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what's a little uh, troubling when you look at the actual numbers. Yeah. Let me stay with you, Jen, there for a minute, because uh, I know you've been particularly looking at the Senate races. So transition us into the Senate. Where do you think, um, you know, Mitch McConnell this week, not showing uh, uh, much confidence, it seems to me, said that uh, the chances of the Republicans holding on to the Senate are 50-50. What states do you think are going to make the difference? And I want to get Sabrina and David to weigh in as well. I think McConnell's 50-50 is a little too generous on the Republican side. I mean, a lot of most of the forecasters right now are saying that Democrats are favored to take control of the Senate. Um, if that happens, it's likely to be a very small majority, maybe 51, 52, 53. There could even be the chance of a 50-50 Senate, which um, frankly just sounds like a lot of gridlock to me. But, um, you know, at this point, Alabama is definitely going to Republicans, Colorado, Arizona, almost certainly going to Democrats. And so the states that I'm watching that I put in the toss-up or um, light toss-up category are Maine, North Carolina, Michigan, and Iowa. And I think what's really interesting is that we saw in 2016, the Senate races tracked exactly with the presidential 
um, there was no daylight. And that has kind of been on, had been increasingly more common in the last couple presidential cycles, but we saw they fell into perfect alignment four years ago. And all signs are that that's going to be exactly the same. I mean, there's very few voters who split their tickets. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to see anyone casting a vote for Biden and, you know, Joni Ernst or Susan Collins. Um, So, um, you know, almost certainly the Senate is going to follow the presidential. And um, I think one interesting thing to watch is two Georgia races, one a regular election, one a special election, are most likely going to go to runoffs, um, which will be decided in January. So we could have a situation in which mm-hmm. um, we don't know who controls the Senate until uh, two months after the election. So um, that's going to add even more uncertainty to election night. So, Sabrina, Maine, North Carolina, Michigan, Iowa, uh, the same ones you're looking at, do you think? Yes, absolutely. And I think that obviously there are are a lot of competitive Senate races that have been striking to watch. Um, Arizona is another key contest where you had a clip go viral from the president's rally there where he was calling up Republican Senator Martha McSally to the stage and has been criticized for the way in which he did so. telling her, come up fast, fast. You've only got one minute. No one cares. Basically, essentially saying no one, no one cares what she wants. No one cares about what she has to say. So, um, you know, she's up against Democrat Mark Kelly, who is, of course, a popular and well-known former astronaut turned uh, gun safety advocate after his wife, then uh, Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, was uh, shot in uh, Tucson in 2011. And, uh, you know, we, I think absolutely Cory Gardner's race in Colorado uh, you mentioned Iowa and Maine. Uh, you know, there are other Tom Tillis in North Carolina. There are just a lot of, uh, I think, Senate races where Trump has obviously been a liability for the Republican on the ballot. And even though the president maintains a great deal of support from the Republican base in a general election and a presidential election where he himself is on the ballot, there are a lot of Republican incumbents who are hoping for ticket splitting as Mm -hmm. polling in their states uh, shows Joe Biden um, either neck and neck with the president in a traditionally red state or obviously ahead in some of these swing states. And then just what I'll just add lastly is, um, you know, Lindsey Graham, I think will, (laughs) you know, ultimately probably, you know, a lot of the odds are that he will hold on. But the fact that we're even talking about Lindsey Graham's Senate race in South Carolina and that Republicans have had to pour a lot of resources there because of Democrat Jamie Harrison and the uh, record amount of money that he's raised. Uh, I think that that is also another uh, narrative well, that's that that j- Democrats have just raised an, an unprecedented amount of money. Uh, and that has meant that Republicans have had to spend money in states that they perhaps wouldn't have otherwise. And then sure. also has just put them on the defensive more broadly and have forced them to pull money out of states where they may have needed it. Hey, David, don't I remember that you're from South Carolina? I am from South Carolina. All right. All right. So give us the South Carolinian take on uh, <laughs> Lindsey Graham and Jamie Harrison. I'm sure you've been watching that one. For very much so. And talking to people down there. Um, yeah, I mean, Lindsey struggled all year. And uh, I, I think I think people, I think they kind of still like Graham, but I think they're a little embarrassed by him because of his obsequiousness to Trump. It's not that South Carolina dislikes Trump so much, but I feel like, a lot of people feel like Graham uh, 
has just been has just overdone it with his fealty to to Trump. Another thing that I have discovered and other reporters who have been down there have discovered is that a lot of people, a lot of Republicans in South Carolina are mad at Lindsey because he didn't stand up for John McCain after Trump attacked him. Huh. That, that's kind of an interesting issue that, yeah. that I've heard it and people that I know have heard it over and over again, that people just did not like the idea that Graham did not come to John McCain's defense after Trump attacked him. And then that, that's kind of hurt him in this race. Now, having said that, I think Six years ago, Lindsey also struggled, and it was only to the last weeks of the election that he really pulled pulled away. And there's some polling evidence that he's pulling slightly away from Jamie Harrison this time around. So I do I do think he will survive, but he has had a hard time. Yeah. Uh, so, Jen, you mentioned Georgia. Uh, and, of course, there are two races in Georgia. Uh, oh. The special election, which uh, you point out, will probably go to a runoff um, with neither Kelly Loeffler or Doug Collins or, uh, Raphael Warnock getting the 51%, the, the regular, uh, Georgia mm-hmm. election between, uh, uh, Senator Perdue and John Ossoff, uh, they had a little debate this week and it got a little heated when John Ossoff went after David Perdue, uh, with, uh, took his gloves off. Here's a, that little exchange. Well, perhaps Senator Perdue would have been able to respond properly to the COVID-19 pandemic if you hadn't been fending off multiple federal investigations for insider trading. It's not just that you're a crook, Senator. It's that you're attacking the health of the people that you represent. You did say COVID-19 was no deadlier than the flu. You did say there would be no significant uptick in cases. All the while, you were looking after your own assets and your own portfolio and you did vote four times to end protections for pre-existing conditions. Uh, Senator Perdue announced yesterday that he will not participate in the next debate with John Ossoff. Uh, surprise, surprise, Jen. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it wasn't terribly surprising after seeing that clip, but it is still remarkable for a senator to back out of a debate that has already been scheduled and agreed to. I mean, you have to assume that Senator Perdue's folks told him that the um, the negative attention he's going to get for canceling a debate is better than <laughs> what might happen in that next debate. And I mean, you know, Ossoff still has an uphill battle. It is still Georgia. And, um, you know, even President Biden is doing well there for a Democrat, but this is a Republican state. And so, um, you know, Ossoff has nothing to lose really by going hard after Senator Perdue and um, seeing if he could uh, get past that 50% threshold to avoid a runoff. And, um, uh, you know, I, we, we should add that that state could go or that race could go to a runoff also. And then I think we'd see even just more attention, more money being thrown in, uh, in Ossoff's direction in a special election. You know, I, I, it's worth saying just to button this up that I think all of us have sort of indicated it is remarkable that in this year, we are talking about the possibility of Democrats winning in Georgia, Mm -hmm. right, in Iowa, in South Carolina, even talking about the possibility in some of these states, David Jackson, is different and new, right? Very much so. You just reminded me, I was talking with a Trump official this week about, you know, how I was trying to figure out how it's going to play out Tuesday. And the first thing he said was, well, you know, we have to hold serve in Texas, Ohio and oh, Georgia and Iowa. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, you're talking about the 
you're, you're worried about what's going on in Texas and Georgia? And he said, yeah. And that kind of illustrated the challenge they faced. Yeah, I saw a story this morning where Ted Cruz called the president this week and said, you know, you got to think about Texas, right? It's a, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a real game down here, gameplay, and uh, don't take it for granted. Kinda well, the Democrats have been working that. You know, I used to work for the Dallas Morning News as well, and the Democrats have been working toward this for more than 20 years, and it looks like the time is at hand. I mean, the, the urban growth and the penetration of the suburbs has, has made the Democrats pretty competitive in Texas statewide elections at long last. Well, uh, hopefully we will all know uh, by this time next week. <laughs> if yeah. not, we're in for a if we're not we're in for a long haul. Uh, thank you so much, Jennifer Habercorn, Sabrina Siddiqui, and David Jackson. But we don't let you go without uh, asking you. So, what was the story this week that that uh, stopped you in your tracks and you said, "Oh my God, this is serious," or "This is funny," or "This is worth just uh, taking a, another look at." Um, Jennifer, how about you, your favorite story of the week? So I'm going to point to a story that my colleague Molly O'Toole wrote. It's called um, The Nepalese Man Who Came Back from the Dead. And uh, the headline kind of gives away the, uh, the point of the story. But buried underneath this uh, return from the dead is, is a very interesting topic of um, labor rights in Saudi Arabia. It was a, a man from Nepal who had gone to Saudi Arabia to work, uh, really uncovers um, the plight of, of these migrant workers. Uh, very interesting. Uh, deep read for the weekend. Well, wait, but, but don't leave us there. Was he actually <laughs> buried in rubble or something and brought back from the dead? What's um, so it was a case of mistaken identity. Um, uh -huh. But uh, I don't want to give any more away. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, latimes.org, right? Or dot yeah, com. Uh, dot com. Thank dot you. LATimes.com. Look for the Nepalese man. I'm going to do it right after we finish. Uh, Sabrina Siddiqui, if you don't have a dog story, I'll be surprised. Well, you asked for a dog story, so I brought a dog story. So, you know, I have to stay on brand over here and do a feel-good dog story. So, um, Hawaiian animal shelters have been overcrowded because of the coronavirus pandemic. And so an animal rescue group flew more than 600 dogs and cats from overcrowded, overcrowded shelters in what some of some groups are calling the largest pet rescue flight in history. So Wow. From Hawaii to the from, mainland? From Hawaii to the mainland. And these uh, cats and dogs flew on a Hercules C-130 plane, a large <laughs> military aircraft. And they landed in Seattle on Thursday. They'll be distributed to various shelters in Oregon, Idaho, Montana, and Washington State, um, available for people who want to give them a home. And uh, one of the many consequences of the pandemic is places huh. like animal shelters are overcrowded and unable to yeah. maintain staffing. And, uh, you know, there's been a obviously tremendous humanitarian toll and also a toll on our furry friends. So... You know, it's just interesting, though, that it was the largest yeah, that's... rescue flight in history. So they say. Maybe there's one right. that we don't yet know about. But I promised a dog story, and I brought a dog story. <laughs> well, imagine being on that flight, by the way. That would have been... <laughs> 600. That's a lot. That's a lot of I know. That would have been a very lively flight. Uh, David Jackson, what caught your attention? Uh, I'm going to pick with the, the the World Series, the Los Angeles Dodgers oh, winning the World yeah. Series. 
They defeated the Tampa Bay Rays four games to two. Now, it wasn't the greatest World Series ever played, but it wasn't the worst. It was played at a neutral site in Arlington, Texas. Uh, mm-hmm. There weren't many fans there because of COVID restrictions, but it was it was a baseball game, and it was fun, and it was interesting to watch. And it was, it was proof that the Major League Baseball was able to put together some kind of season and able to crown a champion and i think it's it's a sign that we're going to get through this yeah absolutely that's a that's a good pick well uh sabrina has inspired me i figured if she was going to come up with a dog story i'd have to come up with a cat story Uh, (laughs) that's my favorite story of the week you may have read about this uh happened in the uk at southwark uh, i'm sorry south monk cathedral in london where for the last uh, 12 years, they have had a stray cat that adopted the cathedral, or the cathedral adopted this cat, uh, and it was very much in presence at the cathedral. Uh, During services, it would be sleeping in a pew somewhere, or occasionally it would walk across the altar uh, in the middle of a service. Uh, It was also seen sleeping in the straw in the nativity scene. It would be right in there alongside the baby Jesus. Uh, And this cat was named, they named it Dorkin's Magnificat. Dorkin's Magnificat uh, was there for 12 years, but poor Dorkin's passed away uh, September 30. Uh, And the bishop of the cathedral uh, held a memorial service for the cat because the cat was so popular among their parishioners. Uh, And some people criticized the bishop for holding a memorial service for a cat. And he said, look, it's very simple. Uh, First of all, everybody loved Dorkins, but also Dorkins had more Twitter followers than he did. And he said that Dorkins actually brought more people to the cathedral for services than he did. So he thought it was appropriate to hold the memorial service for the cat. So there you go. Sabrina, we're keeping the animal kingdom alive here. Uh, And that's about it for today. Sabrina Siddiqui, Wall Street Journal. Thank you so much, Jennifer Habercorn, LA Times. Thank you so much. And David Jackson, USA Today. Thank you, David. And come back and join us uh, again. And that's it for today's podcast. A couple of programming notes here, first of all, which is next week on Tuesday, we will not have our normal in-depth interview. But on Wednesday morning, we will have a special roundtable with four reporters, Washington political reporters, to talk about what we know about the results by Wednesday morning. Hopefully we'll know the results, but whatever we know, we'll talk about it then. And then we'll have a regular roundtable next Friday. And final programming note, please, if you haven't already done so, get out and vote. Don't mail your ballots. It's too late to mail your ballots. But if you haven't already voted, uh, get out there and vote early or take your absentee ballot down and turn it in yourself. But please vote, vote, vote. And meanwhile, stay strong, stay safe, and come back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.